What's up, English 11? All right, let's check the time. It's actually Thursday, so I'm recording on Thursday night because I don't know if I can fit all of this into another a part two. I might have to do three parts for this chapter, but I'm going to record on Thursday just so I know I have this ready to go on Friday, and then we'll see how much I get through. Um, welcome back. Welcome back to chapter seven. You know, the more I think about this, the more I realize, like, this is my favorite chapter in this book because it's just what fiction is all about and fiction is all about breaking your heart and I know I know that's a terrible thing to say but like the best writers are gonna create a relationship between their fictional characters and you the reader and then they are going to twist things around into a way that might seem like gut-wrenching to you as the reader. And maybe that's momentarily sad for you as the reader, but there are two really important things that are happening to you, even though your heart is getting broken. One is that that's an incredible use of talent to, to like create a fictitious world with fictitious people and still break your heart, right? The other thing is, is like, this is why stories are so memorable and so moving because the happy ever afters might make us feel good, but they don't make us think differently. And Fitzgerald has a very strong argument in this book, and he is achieving that argument by creating these really memorable, distinct, definitive characters, and then putting them into these pressure cooker situations. And then, like I said, breaking your heart at the end. And like, this is the beginning of the heartbreak, and I absolutely love it. I know that's weird, but um, that's how I feel about it. Okay, so we ended last time with this conversation. Um, I, I'm in the paperback version on page 135 where they get off on this tangent about Blocks Biloxi. And this is like guy who they're now realizing in this late conversation has like he crashed their Daisy and Tom's wedding. And oh, isn't that interesting? And, and they realized like the guy was a like he just he was like totally, I'm trying to not use a swear word. He was full of BS basically. As he came to the wedding, he said, Oh yeah, I was a president at Yale. And they're now realizing like, Oh, that guy was full of crap, which of course reminds Tom that he's got some business with another person who he thinks is full of baloney. So upon the topic of Biloxi, um, after this, Tom says, by the way, Mr. Gatsby, I understand you're an Oxford man. Not exactly. That's what Gatsby says. Oh, yes, I understand you went to Oxford. Yes, I went there. A pause. Then Tom's voice, incredulous and insulting. Guys, we've talked about the word incredulous before. It means unbelieving. You must have gone there about the same time Biloxi went to New Haven, which, of course, means Tom does not believe that Gatsby went there at all. Okay, then Gatsby says, I told you I went there, said Gatsby. I heard you but I'd like to know when. And then Gatsby says, it was 1919. I only stayed five months. That's why I can't really call myself an Oxford man. And then Gatsby continues and he says, it was an opportunity they gave to some of the officers after the armistice, he continued. We could go to any of the universities in England or France. And then Nick notes, I wanted to get up and slap him on the back. I had one of those renewals of complete faith in him that I'd experienced before. Daisy rose, smiling faintly, and went to the table. Open the whiskey, Tom, she ordered, and I'll make you a mint julep. 
Then you won't so then you won't seem so stupid to yourself. Look at the mint. And again, notice Daisy's confidence here. She is feeling in charge and in control. Um, how long can that last? Right? We don't know. Okay. Wait a minute, Snap Tom. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one one more question. Go on, Gatsby asks politely. And then Tom says, what kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyhow? So now Tom is really like going for the jugular, as I would say. Like he is going right at the biggest elephant in the room. He is saying, you are having an affair with my wife and I'm here to stop it. Okay, so Daisy objects and she says, you know, you, you know, he's not causing a row. You are. Have a little self-control. And then Tom says, self-control? I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from nowhere make love to your wife. Well, if that's the idea, you can count me out. Nowadays, people begin sneering at family life and family institutions. And next, they'll throw everything overboard and have intermarriage between black and white. This part's funny to me. Flushed with his impassioned gibberish, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization. That's a great line from Nick. You know, basically Tom is trying to make some moral argument here, which is ridiculous considering he's the most immoral person in the room. And then he's like, oh my God, you know, it's all going to get so crazy that black people are going to marry white people. And what could be more bananas than that? And everyone's kind of like, first of all, as we've discussed, Tom you know, his whiteness gives him all this authority. And so, you know, whatever, he's just making himself look like an idiot. And then Jordan says, we're all white here, murmured Jordan. Tom goes on. I know I'm not very popular. I don't give big parties. I suppose you've got to make your house into a pigsty in order to have any friends in the modern world. Um, and then Nick says, angry as I was, as we all were, I was tempted to laugh whenever he opened his mouth. The transition from libertine to prig was so complete. And so we want to pause here for a sec. Like Tom, Tom does not have a good argument to make. Like he is, he's a huge hypocrite. He is a huge hypocrite, but at the exact same time, he's got a lot of other things that work in his favor. And it's all about his status, his whiteness, his money, his gender, all of those things, none of those things were earned on his part. But again, Fitzgerald is trying to make a comment about the world we live in, which is, like it or not, these things are the things that get people ahead in America. And I would argue that Fitzgerald is trying to say, this is not the way it should be. Tom should not be the person in charge because he is a terrible human being. And yet, Tom is constantly the person in charge. Okay, let's keep going. Um, and then Gatsby says... I've got something to tell you, old sport, began Gatsby, but Daisy guessed at his intention. Please don't, she interrupted helplessly. Please, let's all go home. Why don't we all go home? That's a good idea. I got up. Come on, Tom. Nobody wants a drink. And then he says, I want to know what Mr. Gatsby has to tell me. Your wife doesn't love you, said Gatsby quietly. She never loved you. She loves me. You must be crazy, exclaimed Tom automatically. Gatsby sprang to his feet, vivid with excitement. She never loved you, do you hear? He cried. She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart, she never loved anyone except me. So, Tom, so Gatsby here is like really trying to make his claim, okay? 
So then, of course, Nick feels really awkward. And um, it's that later, you know, like Daisy tries to leave and Tom says, sit down, Daisy. And it says, Tom's voice groped unsuccessfully for the paternal note. What's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I told you what's been going on, said Gatsby, going on for five years and you didn't know. So again, like notice Tom is not in control. He doesn't have all the information. He's, um, he's trying to figure some things out and this is not where Tom wants to be. So then Tom turns to Daisy and says, you've been seeing this fellow for five years. Not seeing said Gatsby. No, we couldn't meet, but both of us loved each other all the time, old sport. And you didn't know I used to laugh sometimes, but there was no laughter in his eyes to think that you didn't know. Oh, that's all. Tom tapped his thick finger together like a clergy and clapped his hands and leaned back in his chair. You're crazy, he exploded. I can't speak about what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then. And I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her unless you brought the groceries to the back door. Oh, did you just hear that, reader, listener? Tom is trying to say to Gatsby, you are not of our status. And this is really like the, the stake that Tom is going to drive into the coffin right now. He is going to let everybody in this room know that Gatsby can, ne he, can, he will never be of the same status as Tom. Okay, let's keep going. So Tom continues, but all the rest of that's a goddamn lie. Daisy loved me when she married me and she loves me now. No, said Gatsby, shaking his head. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets, this is Tom talking, she gets foolish ideas in her head and doesn't know what she's doing. He nodded sagely. And what's more, I love Daisy, too. Once in a while, I go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back. And in my heart, I love her all the time. You're revolting, said Daisy. She turned to me and her voice, dropping an octave lower, filled the room with scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised they didn't treat you to that to you to the story of that little spree. Okay, this is like a oh, this is like her best moment because she says to him like, "You're horrible. You're a horrible man." And obviously, they had to move to New York City from Chicago because again, he had an affair. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now. He said earnestly, "Doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth that you never loved him." And it's all wiped out forever. And remember, this is like Gatsby's one goal in life. This is the green light. This is the thing that's going to bring it all together. If Daisy could simply tell her husband that she never loved him and we could move on. But again, like that's such a huge thing to ask of her. Okay. And then, okay. Nick narrates. She looks at him blindly. Why? How could I ever love him possibly? And then Gatsby says, you never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, as though she realized at last what she was doing, and as though she had never all along intended to do anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him, she said with perceptible reluctance. Not at Capiolani, demanded Tom suddenly. No. From the ballroom, beneath muffled and scuffling chords, were drifting up in hot waves of air. Not the day I carried you from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry. There was a husky tenderness in his tone. Daisy, please don't. Her voice was cold, but the rancor was gone from it. She looked at Gatsby. There, Jay, she said, but her hand, as she tried to light a cigarette, was trembling. She threw it, the cigarette, on the burning carpet. 
and the burning match on the carpet. Oh, you want too much, she cried to Gatsby. I love you now, isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. She began to sob helplessly. I did love him once, but I loved you too. Gatsby opened and closed his eyes. You love me too, he repeated. And again, like, this is not the plan. Like, Gatsby is not willing to accept that he was loved in addition to this other man. He's like, no, no, no. The plan is that you only love me, remember? And again, you really, like, I shouldn't say you. Me as the reader, like, in this moment, you really see Daisy as this, I don't know, like this trophy that they're sort of arguing over. No, no, no. Say you love me. No, no, no. Say you love me. Like, this just ego-feeding device. And she doesn't really even, she's not even given the time to process like what she actually wants. And even according to societal rules or norms, like it's not really about what she wants, which is so sad. So then Tom says, even that's a lie. She didn't know you were alive. Why there are things between Daisy and me that you'll never know. Things that neither of us can ever forget. The words seem to bite physically into Gatsby. So, so here we go. Now the tides are turning a little bit. We're Tom is realizing, you know, that his wife is very shaky and he's kind of taking advantage of this. And Gatsby says, I want to speak to Daisy alone, he insisted. She's all excited now. Even alone, I can't say I never loved Tom, she admitted in a pitiful voice. It wouldn't be true. Of course it wouldn't, agreed Tom. She turned to her husband. As if it mattered to you, she said. Oh, again, Daisy, yes, girl. But, you know, it's just not enough. Like, she just doesn't have it in her to, to say to him, you're, you know, you guys know, like nothing's going to change in this marriage. Okay, wait, wait, let me keep going. Of course it matters. I'm going to take better care of you from now on. You don't understand, said Gatsby with a touch of panic. You're not going to take care of her anymore. I'm not? Tom opened his eyes wide and laughed. He could afford to control himself now. Ooh, key line here. He could afford to control himself now. Tom knows he's like an animal. He senses it. He has now got the upper hand. Why is that? So then Gatsby says, she's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though, she said with a visible effort. She's not leaving me. Tom's words suddenly leaned down over Gatsby. Notice the power, guys. Certainly not for a common swindler who'd have to steal the ring he put on her finger. Oh, again, Tom is coming in with the social class insults. I won't stand this, cried Daisy. Please, let's get out. Remember, it's extremely hot, extremely stifling. Who are you anyhow, broke out Tom. You're one of the bunch that hangs around with Meyer Wolfsheen. That, that much I happen to know. I've made a little investigation into your affairs. I'll carry it further tomorrow. You can suit yourself about that, old sport, said Gatsby steadily. I found out what your drug stores were. He turned to us and spoke rapidly. He and this Wolfshine brought up a lot of side street drug stores here and in Chicago and sold grain alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him up for a bootlegger the first time I saw him and I wasn't far wrong. What about it? Said Gatsby politely. I guess your friend Walter Chase wasn't too proud to come in on it. And left you him in the lurch, didn't you? You let him go to jail for over a month in New Jersey. God, you ought to hear Walter on the subject of you. He came to us dead broke. He was very glad he was very glad to pick up some money, old sport. Don't you call me old sport, cried Tom. Gatsby said nothing. Walter could have you up on the betting laws too, but Wolfsheim scared him scared him into shutting his mouth. That unfamiliar yet recognizable look was back 
again on Gatsby's face. Okay, now let's pause for a moment. Like right here in this in this moment, Gatsby is we are how do I say this? The mask, the facade of Gatsby is just falling a little bit. And we're starting to see that like he is who we thought he was. He is this criminal, right? He's in this criminal ring. And again, it's going to come down to social class. Is Daisy really going to leave her husband, her millionaire husband with his polo horses and her lavish life for a criminal? Even if she's madly in love with him? Okay, we got to keep going. Um, the drugstore business was just small change, continued Tom slowly. But you've got something on now that Walter's afraid to tell me about. Nick says, I glanced at Daisy, who was staring terrified between Gatsby and her husband, and at Jordan, who had begun to balance an invisible but absorbing object on the tip of her chin. Then I turned back to Gatsby and was startled at his expression. He looked, and this is said in all contempt for the babbled slander of his garden, as if he had killed a man. For a moment, the set of his face could be described in just that fantastic way. So Nick is like kind of seeing Gatsby for the first time, and he looks scary. And this is like, you know, Mr. Blue Skies, like this guy's not scary, but he is, he is kind of scary, especially to Nick. Okay. Um, it passed and he began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying, in by he we mean Gatsby, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. But with every word she was withdrawing, she was drawing further and further into herself. So he gave up and only the dead dream fought against it fought on as the afternoon slipped away, trying to touch what was no longer tangible, struggling unhappily, undis undespairingly toward the lost voice across the room. Oh, it says it right there, you guys, the dead dream. The dream is dead. It's over. Tom has exposed him and embarrassed him and his wife, the, the whole affair is over. Please, Tom, I can't stand this anymore. Her frightened eyes told that whatever intentions, whatever courage she had had, were definitely gone. There you go. It's over between her and Gatsby. You two start on home, Daisy, said Tom, in Mr. Gatsby's car. She looked at Tom, alarmed now, but he insisted with magnanim magnanimous scorn. Go on. He won't annoy you. I think he realizes that his presumptuous little flirtation is over. They were gone without a word, snapped out, made accidental, isolated like ghosts, even from our pity. After a moment, Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. You want any of this stuff, Jordan, Nick? I didn't answer. Nick, he asked again. What? Want any? No, I just remembered. Today's my birthday. I was 30. Before me stretched the pretentious, menacing road of a new decade. This may seem like a really random moment that our narrator like just says in the middle of this like huge blow up fight that it's his birthday and he's turning 30. But at the same time, like this, this book is all about time and how weird it is. So it's so fitting that this argument, you know, about time, like you never loved him. Yes, I loved him. I loved you both. Um, takes place on a day where someone is acknowledging a new decade. Okay. Um, I want to read this last paragraph. It was seven o'clock and we got into the coop with him, with him, Tom, and started for Long Island. Tom talked incessantly, exulting and laughing, but his voice was as remote from Jordan and me as the foreign clamor on the sidewalk or the tumult of the elevated overhead. 
human sympathy has its limits, and we were content to let all their tragic arguments fade with the city lights behind. 30. The promise of a, a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning hair. But there was Jordan beside me who, unlike Daisy, was too wise ever to carry well-forgotten dreams from age to age. And again, a really like key moment about how Jordan perceives time. As we passed over the dark bridge, her wan face fell lazily against my coat's shoulder, and the formidable stroke of 30 died away with the reassuring pressure of her hand. So we drove on toward death through the cooling twilight. It's weird that he said they drove on toward death. Oh, it's not weird, though, because the chapter's not over, everybody. There is a major piece of action that's going to take place in the last 10 pages. All right, I'm going to stop here for the night. Um, we have one more episode. Like, yeah, we have one more episode. I'm going to do a part three tomorrow. And it's going to be the last scene of the, um, of the chapter where somebody dies. Okay, so tune in. Tune in later. Love you. Bye.